Due to the nature of this episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of gun violence and murder. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. Your family knows you better than anybody else. They know what you like and what you hate, exactly what buttons to push and how to hit you where it hurts the most. Competition only ratchets up the stakes, like it did for the family at the center of this episode. And as the years went on and big money came into the equation, the competition grew dangerous. These people had a saying, and it keeps ringing in my ears, If it's your family, fight for them. If it's a competitor, destroy them. But what do you do when it's both? Hi, listeners. It's Greg. You're listening to Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa. Hey, everyone. Today is the first in our series about a specific type of serial killer, hitmen. These episodes explore the twisted world of contract homicide, both the people who kill and the ones who hire them. Welcome to Serial Killers Hitmen. Like Vanessa mentioned, our next two episodes will be a little different. We don't want to give too much away. All we can say is that today we're headed to Los Angeles to witness a horrific double homicide that rips a prominent family apart. This murder is a hit, and today we'll tell you all about it. Next time, we'll talk about the man who pulled the trigger. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about. And when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was. And I was able to see it in a different light and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before. Because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. 
Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. On a September night in 1985, 20-year-old Roger Backman visited his mom at her apartment in Brentwood. It's an upper-class suburb, so there's typically not much going on after dark. Around 10 p.m. that night, it was really calm, peaceful, until it wasn't. Roger heard two gunshots in quick succession echo nearby. After a brief pause, three more rang out. Now, this is in Los Angeles, a major metropolitan city with a fair amount of crime. But remember, Roger's in safe, wealthy Brentwood. So he was immediately on edge. He went to his mom's balcony to try and see what was going on. Her place was on the third floor, and he had a decent view of the building next door. A brick wall about five feet high separated the two complexes. As he looked down, a figure leapt over that wall and dropped into the walkway on Roger's side, landing in a crouch. Roger only saw the man for a few seconds, but he noticed a lot in that short time. The figure was around five foot six and pretty fit. He wore all black, with a hood over his face secured tightly at the neck. Roger thought it looked like some kind of martial arts getup, probably because the stranger wore slipper-like shoes. Roger also thought he heard another man on the other side of the wall, concealed by the ivy. But he could only see the one. When he called out to the guy, they made eye contact. Then, the man in black took off. Roger ran down to try and intercept him, but by the time he got to the walkway, the stranger had disappeared. After poking around and talking to another resident, he noticed the underground parking gate in the building next door was open. Roger jumped over the wall to investigate. In the garage, he found a beige Mercedes parked with two of its doors open. The car was off, but the headlights were on. They bounced off the concrete wall ahead, illuminating a gruesome scene. A man in his 60s slumped over in the driver's seat, covered in blood. There was a nasty wound on his neck and another on his chest. On the passenger side was a woman, also in her 60s. She'd been shot three times and was hanging halfway out of the car. On her lap, a plate of fish. Police swarmed the scene about a half hour later. We won't go into the nitty gritty, but there are a few things to highlight. First, someone used bolt cutters to break a chain on a security gate on the west side of the garage. Detectives also noticed the woman still had her jewelry on. Her purse was in the car too. And the man had his wallet. In all likelihood, this wasn't a robbery. Instead, both victims died from their wounds. Their names were Vera and Gerald Woodman. The Woodmans. You might not know that name, but a lot of people in Los Angeles did, especially during the 1970s and 80s. So for now, we'll step away from the crime itself. We'll return to the crime scene in part two, because in order to understand how Vera and Gerald ended up dead in their parking garage, we have to introduce their family. The Woodmans had been wealthy for a long time. Gerald had a sharp business sense and did well in the plastics industry throughout the 1960s. The couple had enough money to throw huge parties, drive expensive cars, and live a lavish lifestyle. The family all appeared tight-knit, too. 
At least that's what some people said. Vera was close with her sons, while Gerald seemed to coddle his daughters. He was still generous with Neil and Stuart, though, his two eldest boys. They got fancy cars for their 16th birthdays. But in general, they seemed to have it tougher with their dad than their sisters did. Gerald was always launching new business ventures, and his sons worked for him from a young age. He often pitted them against each other to ensure they understood the value of competition. He liked to say, if it's your family, fight for them. If it's a competitor, destroy them. It didn't seem like a pleasant experience for anyone. The Los Angeles Times also reported that Gerald could be cruel. Reportedly, he once handed Neil a broom and said that sweeping was all he was good for. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. So it seemed like Gerald was a bully to Neil and Stuart, but based on what we know, he didn't really act that way towards his daughters. And a study in the journal Behavioral Neuroscience found this is pretty common. There are often differences in how parents interact with their kids due to gender. Fathers tend to sing to daughters more often and talk about their emotions. With their sons, though, they can be more physical and focused on achievement. So it makes sense that Gerald's sons grew up valuing ambition and success. And they probably also sought approval from their dad, especially if they saw he was capable of giving it to their sisters. Maybe that's why Neil and Stewart agreed to work for Gerald when he founded a plastics company called Manchester Products in 1975. They were a pretty active part of the business as vice presidents and shareholders with a 25% stake each. Their mother, Vera, had 50%. That meant Gerald didn't have a stake in the company at all. He was president, but handed his wife the biggest stake. For about three years, Gerald operated Manchester while Stewart and Neil helped it grow. The Woodman's youngest son, Wayne, also joined the business at some point. The other brothers hated that. Wayne went to Duke University while Neil and Stuart hadn't gone to college. Wayne seemed to think this made his opinion matter more, which caused arguments. They were mostly small spats, but there were some bigger fights too, like when Wayne spent 50 grand on new logos. Basically, Neil and Stuart felt like they had the experience and that Wayne talked a big game but didn't put in the long hours. To add insult to injury, their dad, Gerald, seemed to defer to Wayne, and there were insinuations that when the time came, Wayne would be the one to take over the company. It's not hard to imagine how bitter they may have felt, especially when Vera gave some of her share of Manchester to Wayne. So he had the same 25% his brothers did, his salary was the same as theirs, too, even though they'd been working longer. Then, around 1979, a crisis shook up the Rocky family dynamic even further. Gerald had a heart attack. The health issues incapacitated him for a while. That meant Neil and Stuart could broaden their responsibilities at Manchester, and they loved it. It might sound harsh, but without their dad around, they had the control and freedom they craved. Neil took over the production side while Stuart was on the sales end, and they thought they were doing a great job. Manchester was thriving. So naturally, they resisted their father's return. At some point over the next year, Gerald started feeling better. He was anxious to take the reins again, but he sensed he was being squeezed out. It got to the point where he would break machinery on purpose. 
machinery only he knew how to fix, so he'd be asked to come in and help out. The brothers eventually tried to buy Gerald out, but he rejected their offer and threatened to shut Manchester down completely. The whole family would have been out of a job. No, Gerald wasn't just holding Neil and Stuart back, he was becoming a liability. Stuart confided in his mother, Vera. He was about to buy a house and his future depended on Manchester doing well. He worried about his dad lighting the fuse and blowing their company to bits. Remember, Vera had a good relationship with her sons, Stuart especially, so she reassured him. She still owned part of the company and she wouldn't let Gerald dissolve it. She'd side with Neil and Stuart. Stuart was relieved. He bought his new house and trusted his mother to keep his dad in line. Which is why it was so shocking when Vera called Stuart to tell him there were gonna be some changes at Manchester. Gerald and Wayne were taking over. The only alternative was liquidation. It was a betrayal of epic proportions. Stuart and Neil jumped into action immediately, changing the locks on Manchester's doors and hiring security. The war was on. Coming up, the war gets ugly. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now, back to the story. In 1981, Gerald Woodman tried to wrestle his company back from his two sons, Neil and Stuart. In retaliation, they filed a lawsuit against their dad. We won't get into all the back and forth of their feud. But in the end, Gerald and his youngest son, Wayne, got a payout and stepped away from Manchester products. It didn't exactly resolve the family issues. Neil and Stuart now owned the company, which had a strong market share in the area, until Gerald started another business, Woodman Industries, that basically did the same thing as Manchester. Now, it wasn't just two families at war, it was two companies. And Gerald's own advice echoed in everyone's ears. If it's your family, fight for them. If it's a competitor, destroy them. Seeing Neil and Stewart as competitors, Woodman Industries immediately poached employees and clients from Manchester. In retaliation, Manchester reported Woodman's flimsy business practices to OSHA and the Union Bank. Ultimately, Woodman Industries couldn't hack it and went bankrupt in 1983. This hit Vera, Gerald, and Wayne pretty hard. Their personal finances were a mess and they had to adjust their lifestyles considerably. For Vera and Gerald, that entailed moving out of their Bel Air home and in with Wayne. Neil and Stewart's company, Manchester Products, needed to make some adjustments too. 
Between the payout to Gerald and Wayne, a ton of overhead, and a lag in customer payments, the company was struggling. The brothers were also dealing with some personal problems, like Stewart's affinity for gambling. He had a few lines of credit at casinos in Las Vegas, though it's not clear if that was contributing to their financial woes. Either way, they tried to find money where they could, even if it meant being a little sneaky. They changed dates on invoices and shipping documents, then graduated to misrepresenting funds. Around this time, they also asked their aunt, Gloria Carnes, to extend the repayment date on a loan she'd given Gerald. It was due to expire in 1985, and they were hoping to get a few more years of breathing room. Gloria kind of agreed, but she had a condition. Neil and Stuart would need to put up some collateral. This seemed to offend the brothers because they eventually took her to court. They were good at that now. And we mean very good. Stuart was quick to pull the lawsuit trigger. According to the LA Times article, he sued his neighbors for off-leash dogs, his stockbroker for bad advice, and even some of Manchester's customers. Alarming behavior for sure, but when they sued their aunt, it was Neil's actions that really showed how bitter and cruel the brothers were. During Neil's deposition, he picked up a magazine and riffled the pages. He said, when somebody annoys you, you can look at a magazine and find someone to stop them annoying you. The magazine in his hands hung open. The article? This gun for hire. Neil and Stewart didn't end up getting that loan extension from their aunt, which meant they hadn't solved their financial issues. And like always, they blamed their dad. For years, employees listened to the brothers complain about their parents, mostly Gerald. The company's vice president even heard Neil and Stewart brag about causing their financial ruin after Woodman Industries imploded. Behind closed doors, they said even worse. Neil was starting to think they should put an end to all of it and kill their dad. In the summer of 1983, Stewart and Neil allegedly shared some of these feelings with a close friend. Joey Gambino. No, not those Gambinos. Joey shares a last name with a notorious crime family, but he's not affiliated. He was crime adjacent, though. Joey worked at the MGM Casino in Las Vegas as a pit boss. It was his job to make sure no one was cheating, which put him into contact with a lot of different kinds of people, like Stuart. On a phone call with Joey, the brothers spoke about their parental woes, and Joey seemed sympathetic. Though Joey denied it, the brothers recalled him asking, quote, Why don't you let me handle this, and we'll put an end to it? This might have been when he suggested they talk to Steve Homick. It's the first time you're hearing that name, but the Woodmans had known Steve since 1980. He was a 40-year-old former LAPD officer who worked at the same casino Joey did. The Las Vegas Review-Journal described Steve as outgoing, with a lot of friends and connections, on both sides of the law. He was a guy who didn't mind doing favors for his buddies, but you can bet he always wanted something in return. I guess some might call him a tough guy. After the meeting, Steve introduced Stewart to his brother, Robert Homick. Maybe he thought they'd get along, since they were both big gamblers. Soon, the two bonded and started calling each other regularly. They were kind of friends, but then again, the Woodmans didn't really make friends with people like Steve and Robert. The Homics became more like part-time employees, hired for the tasks Neil and Stuart didn't really want to do. 
like when they asked Steve to sweep Manchester's offices for bugging devices their parents might have left. Or when Robert drove Stewart's Monte Carlo to the Nevada desert and set it on fire. Also, Stewart could report it stolen and collect the insurance money. Or when Steve installed an intercom system at Manchester so the brothers could listen to what IRS auditors were saying about them. Or when Robert threatened one of Manchester's business associates with violence if they didn't pay up. I believe he said he would break the guy's legs or, quote, snuff out his life. So the Homics were essentially fixers for the Woodmans. Or at least the Woodmans saw them that way. According to a court document, Neil once referred to Steve as being tougher than the Mafia. But let's go back to 1983, because only a few months after the brothers spoke to Joey Gambino, Steve Homick was on his way to Los Angeles. That October, the Woodmans took Steve on a tour of the plant where they made their plastics. As they went, they filled him in about their parents and the feud. Once they finished, Steve was more adamant than ever that they put an end to it. We should note here that Steve Homick was a drug dealer with links to the criminal underworld in Las Vegas. He did a brief stint with the LAPD, so he had some training with weaponry and tactics. But as far as we know, he wasn't a professional hitman. Still, the Woodmans thought he was capable. And soon, Neil and Stewart were seriously considering taking a hit out on their parents. People hire hitmen for all kinds of reasons. A family feud, a vendetta, life insurance money, and so on. A 2003 analysis by the Australian Institute of Criminology found that 20% of hits studied in Australia were romantically motivated, while 16% were money-related. The Atlantic reported on these crimes, paying special attention to the instigators behind the hits, the people who actually hire the assassins. Generally, they're able to convince themselves that they're not killers. Since they didn't commit the actual murder, there shouldn't be any blood on their hands, right? That may sound out of touch. But remember, the Woodmans grew up wealthy. They'd always been able to hire people to meet their needs. They were used to a staff at home and a company full of employees. Why not hire someone for murder? Even so, there had to be some debate between the brothers. Maybe they even weighed the past advice from their dad. If it's your family, fight for them. If it's a competitor, destroy them. Should Neil and Stuart think of Vera and Gerald as competitors or their parents? Now, children killing their parents is very rare. Statistics from Australia, Canada, and the UK show that in each of these countries, there are less than 30 incidents per year on average. But when it does happen, adults are most often the perpetrators, and usually when the sons are doing the killing, the fathers are the targets. Right. Neil and Stuart wanted their dad dead. Their mother, they weren't so sure. Stuart had a really close relationship with her, but she'd also betrayed him to side with Gerald. However, they were convinced if they only killed Gerald, it would be too obvious. Tons of people knew how much they hated him, and at least one person overheard Neil directly threaten Gerald's life. Eventually, they decided that even if Gerald was the target, Vera might have to be collateral. Because of her close relationship with Stuart, no one would suspect they were the culprits. They'd also get a payout. Okay, let me explain. Manchester Products still owned a life insurance policy on Vera from back when she was a shareholder. It was worth about $500,000. 
Vera left the company, but Manchester kept paying its premium. So Manchester, a.k.a. Neil and Stewart, would get paid if Vera died. Remember, Manchester was going through financial woes. This could effectively get Gerald out of their lives forever and grant them a quick cash infusion. So the Woodmans thought it over, and soon they called Steve back with an answer. Coming up, the hit. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the story. At the end of 1983, Stuart and Neil Woodman told Steve Homick they wanted their parents dead. Steve would be the guy to kill them. But they did have a condition, that he not bring his brother Robert in on the plan. Robert, they said, was a klutz. Steve agreed and named his price, between forty dollars and $50,000. The deal was done. The hit was on. Steve jotted down information about the older Woodmans, including details like where they lived, their routines, and so on. It seemed like the younger Woodmans didn't hear much more until April 1984. Around Passover, Robert tried to kill Vera and Gerald on their way back from a family gathering. He told the Woodman brothers that, We almost got them during the holidays, but your father was driving like a lunatic. This came as a surprise to the Woodman brothers, who hadn't wanted Robert involved. Though they weren't surprised when Robert demanded $6,000 for the attempted hit. Neil and Stewart got the cash from their company's expense fund. With Robert Homick's involvement, plus the failed first attempt, the Woodmans were starting to worry things weren't going to work. But Steve assured them it was all fine. He promised to be more careful on their next approach. For the next 10 or so months, Steve stalked Vera and Gerald, taking notes outside their place. They lived with their son Wayne in Roscomare, another Los Angeles neighborhood. Steve jotted down dates and times, along with some code names for Vera and Gerald. He surveilled them until early 1985, when Wayne moved to a new place, and Vera and Gerald got their own apartment. By February, the couple moved into a unit on Gorham Avenue in Brentwood. Steve watched them in their new home, taking note of their real estate agent and their neighbors. Sometimes Robert joined him or took over. Like one night in June, when Robert was watching the apartment from his blue Buick. A few neighbors noticed the car parked at various points along the street, staying for four to six hours at a time. They took down the license plate and told the police. The cops questioned Robert, who claimed he was reading. 
It was weird, but there was no crime being committed, so the police filed what's called a field interview card with Robert and called it a day. While the Hummocks worked on surveillance, the younger Woodmans kept up appearances. They worked at Manchester, spent time with their family, and continued the feud with their parents. They also kept some major life events on their calendar, like Neil's son's bar mitzvah. We mentioned this before, but the Woodmans were historically tight-knit. Vera was already upset that she'd been cut off from her grandchildren for the last five years, so keeping her from her grandson during such an important moment would be an especially brutal move. And that's why Neil and Stuart did it. They hired Steve to work security at the bar mitzvah. His main task was to prevent Vera and Gerald from getting in. He even hired two former LAPD officers to assist him and told them to carry weapons. He added, quote, if necessary, I will waste them. Vera and Gerald didn't show. Shortly afterwards, Stuart got in touch with one of his aunts. She'd always been devastated by the rift and wanted to keep the family together. So she invited him to their Yom Kippur gathering that September. Vera and Gerald would be there. Maybe it was time to make amends. For those who don't know, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is an important day for the Jewish faith. The holiday often means spending the day in prayer, fasting until sundown. It's about reflection and repentance for one's sins, a time to ask God for forgiveness. It's a somber, sacred day. Stuart thought it was the perfect time to execute his parents. The Homics had already done hours of surveillance. Now there was a night when they knew Vera and Gerald would be together. Everyone seemed to agree. September was the time to strike. Two days before, Stuart called his aunt to confirm the gathering spot for Yom Kippur. She told him the entire family would be getting together to break the fast. After that call, Stuart phoned Robert. They spoke for two minutes. Keep in mind they talked about once a day around 4 p.m. to discuss gambling and place bets, so this wasn't unusual. But it was probably during this phone call that Robert told Stuart, quote, everything's ready. Around 10 p.m. on September 25th, Steve and Robert Homick hovered in the shadows of an underground parking garage. They were dressed head to toe in black, hoods pulled tight over their faces. They watched the electric gate at the front of the garage, waiting for their victims to pass through it. They heard a car approach. They saw headlights. The gate slowly rose as a beige Mercedes pulled up outside. Steve drew his gun. It was time to destroy the competition. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. We'll be back next time with part two, where we get to know the men behind the hit. For more information on the Killer Brothers, we found the court briefing People vs. Stephen Homick extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Stay safe out there. Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Spencer Howard. 
Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Kate Murdoch, edited by Terrell Wells and Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Kitovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Greg Polson and me, Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.